0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode of America Adapts. I've been hyping this episode for several months now. It's the first part of a three-part flood series that I'm doing with World Wildlife Fund. I'll go into more detail with my first interview with Anita Van Breda of WWF on what we hope to accomplish with this series. But the overall goal is to highlight all the complexities associated with flooding, and we'll dig into the role of climate change, and we'll talk about nature-based solutions to flood management. I'm releasing this episode just as a hurricane is threatening the East Coast, which is a sobering reminder of the importance of this topic. Also, I want to highlight that this three-part series has been generously sponsored by World Wildlife Fund. I greatly appreciate their interest in using podcasting as a storytelling device to share important information. They are great partners, and I encourage you to check out the resources they provide in my show notes. We want this episode to become a major resource to not only flood planners, but the general public that wants to be better informed on what's happening in this critical area of disaster management. I think you'll really enjoy hearing all about this with the guest lineup we have. Okay, some brief housekeeping. Future episodes. I was just sponsored to join the Freedom to Breathe bus tour, which is traveling the country to highlight the issue of climate change and how it's impacting local communities. I joined the bus on its New Orleans portion of the tour. I had some amazing interviews on how climate change is impacting women and also the LBGT community. Also, Elizabeth Rush is coming back on the podcast to discuss her book, Rising. It's been an amazing six months for her. I'll also have another episode focusing on Queensland, Australia, where I talk with people from the outback and what climate change means to them. Some great content is coming your way. Okay, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in sponsoring a specific podcast where I go on location or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in the adaptation sector. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Let's jump right in. Before we jump into our conversations with the flooding experts, I wanted to check in with Anita Van Breda from the World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Anita, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks. It's great to be back with you. So you've been on the podcast before, but for new listeners, who are you and what do you do?
1: Okay, my name is Anita Van Breda, and I'm the Senior Director for Environment and Disaster Management at WWF. And the program that I manage sits within our Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience team. So the work of my team is to focus specifically on how to incorporate environmentally responsible practices into disaster management. And for us, disaster management means disaster recovery, reconstruction, and risk reduction.
0: Okay, so this is the kickoff of a three-part flooding series on America Daps that WWF is sponsoring. Why is the World Wildlife Fund so interested in this topic of flooding?
1: Well, we're interested for a number of different reasons, Doug. One is that statistically floods and flooding is the number one disaster around the world. And I think many of us have experienced this challenge recently. So in terms of the disaster management team, it makes sense that we would look at the environmental issues around flooding. And a few years ago, the U.S. Agency for International Development, their Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance asked us to write a guidebook on how to use natural and nature-based flood management methods. And their thinking was that their clients, their partners around the world, individuals and organizations that they support, often are challenged by floods. And a lot of the project proposal ideas that they were receiving to address floods were focused on traditional, what we call gray or hard engineering. So the things that we're familiar with, seawalls, dikes, and levees. And we know now after a hundred or so years of trying to manage floods, that that approach is no longer appropriate or even possible in a world of a changing climate. And so they were interested in us helping them with developing this guidebook to support their partners and clients around the world on how to use natural and nature-based methods for flood management. So that was an opportunity for us to dig into this issue, um, and it's been a fascinating process and a fascinating project. We issued that guide in 2017, and we're just now finishing up the development of a training program to support the use of the guide.
0: Okay, so this Flood Guide is out and available now. Who's using it? And people really want to get a sense of what's in it. Could you elaborate a bit more on it?
1: Sure. The Flood Guide is out. It's free and open source. It's available online. And I think you're going to be putting up the, the website in your show notes. So thank you for that. It's available in English. We're hoping to have other languages soon available. But it's based on a couple of key principles. So One of the first principles in the guidebook is that flooding is a natural process. And in many places, flooding can be beneficial. And I think some of the speakers uh, are going to be speaking to that issue as well. The idea behind flood management is not necessarily to stop all flooding in all places, but we want to minimize or eliminate any risk for people and for infrastructure while we also maximize the benefits that flooding can provide. Secondly, we want to look at flood risk management from a watershed perspective. So we need to look upstream and downstream at what is happening in order to make intelligent decisions on how to manage that risk. And then in our guidebook, we also promote three distinct approaches. So we try to promote the idea that the first line of defense is what we call non-structural methods. And non-structural methods are things like Land use planning, urban planning to try to separate people from risk. And if that is not sufficient, then the second line of defense is natural and nature based methods to manage flood water. And if those two things in combination are no longer sufficient, then the gray or hard engineering can be combined with those first two to have a hybridized approach using multiple methods to reduce risk as much as possible and uh, live with the floodwaters that we need to deal with. So those are some of the key principles that the the guidebook is based on. And then the book is organized in a way that it goes through a five-step process. And I, I won't describe it all here, but really what we help the user do is go through a process of understanding what their context is, what is actually happening in their place in terms of land use and policy governance issues, social issues, economic development issues, and then also what is their risk because we don't want people just jumping into doing some methods without really understanding what their context and their risk is. So once they've gone through those steps, then they can look at a range of different methods that might be available and appropriate to their place and to their risk and choose a combination of those methods. And then the rest of the guidebook helps the decision-maker understand how to use those methods in combination, how to monitor what's happening with these methods and if they're working appropriately, and if not, how to make adjustments. And then think of this as a circular process. It's not a one-way direction. You have to go back to the beginning and look to see, has anything changed? Has anything changed with land use? Has anything changed with the climate situation If so, what adjustments do we need to make to adjust to those changes? And so those are the basic steps and approaches in the guidebook. And as I mentioned, we hope to shortly have available the training curriculum to help support the use of the guidebook. And that will also be a free and open source available on the website.
0: Okay, so this is World Wildlife Fund and along with some partners. But can anyone use the guidebook? And even when you get to the point where you have some training opportunities, I mean, who would you recommend that would really benefit from using this?
1: Well, I think it depends. But those who are working in disaster management, those who are working on water management, uh, those who are responding to disasters or flood risk could all benefit from the content within the guidelines. And I should also say that they're supported with a uh, many additional resources. There's a long history of flood management around the world, and there's lots of folks who are working on the next generation of approaches and practices. And so we try to include that as well in the guidebook and online so people can look for diverse input
0: and support. Okay, you had mentioned nature-based solutions, and that's obviously what WWF wants to emphasize. And I just think as a a preview of what the speakers are talking about, why isn't that more of the default way of approaching flooding? And I I don't want you to answer. I just I I want to give people a sense that that is a common theme. Uh, Hopefully, you'll be listening for that. And why it's not always used, it, there's some interesting stories around that. And I think our speakers dive into that, but I hope the listeners out there that you're listening for that theme. And it's obviously something that's very important to WWF.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. It is. And I think this podcast and other communication and outreach methods that we're involved with are all done in the spirit of trying to communicate and engage with a whole range of different individuals and organizations. And that, for me, is what I find so fascinating about this topic and about this project is the very many different types of expertise and types of issues that are involved with it. So when we think of flood management, yes, we think of engineering, and of course, that's important and very specific. But there's just so many things around history and around culture in a way and around the way that people think and act and behave. And there's issues with economics and with finances and with learning about how these things work, learning about how the world around us is changing. And rather than looking at that as something to fear or to be thought of as always a bad situation, I think we can look at this as also these challenges and opportunity as opportunities, I mean, opportunities to change the way that we think and the way that we do things around disaster management. And for me, that keeps it very interesting. It's a new issue and a new challenge every day.
0: Okay, let's talk about these experts. So we went through this process of identifying expert that we wanted to come on the podcast and our challenge was not to give you guys an 8 hour podcast and so it was <laughs> it was a, it wasn't a challenge to find a lot of great speakers but at the same time get, getting it down but uh, who are these experts that we recruited for this specific episode
1: Well it is a challenge because there are so many different issues and there's so many interesting things going on but with the folks that we have on the first episode I think what your listeners will, will learn are some of the fundamentals around the history and the tradition of flood management. So, for example, we have, um, Steve Stockton, who is an expert in flood management. He, he spent several decades working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So he has seen and done it all, so to speak. It's great to have him involved. He was part of the advisory group for the flood green guide project. Um and I think he's got so he's got that long-term uh view and perspective. And then Brechie van Beswijk, who's with Del Taris, a company in the Netherlands, and um throughout the development of the Flood Flood Green Guide, we heard a lot and we talked a lot about the Netherlands, which is near and dear to my heart because my family is originally from the Netherlands, and I grew up hearing about uh, the big floods in the Netherlands and what it's like to live in a country that's, generally speaking, below sea level. So the Dutch, of course, have been out in front of this issue for centuries, um, and she has some interesting perspectives on where the field and where the practice is going. And then Jeff Offerman, who is the freshwater scientist with WWF, he looks at this issue from a systems perspective and the many different um, systems within a flood management initiative and who benefits and who loses and how do we balance out those choices. And so – That's a good grounding in some of the basics of this issue. And then in episode two and three, I think your listeners can look forward to just a wide range of diverse voices and viewpoints from around the world, people who have lived through floods, people who are doing dealing with it now, and some of the interesting and innovative ways to engage with communities and different actors in order to change behavior and adapt to a changing world.
0: So let's get to these experts and and hear what they have to say about this. And so listeners, on occasion you're going to hear an additional voice asking some questions and that's just Anita. There's a, some of these conversations that we we tag team the conversations a bit and I just so you know who that is. We won't introduce her during those interviews, but that's who that additional voice is. And any last thoughts before we get started here Anita?
1: No, I'm really excited about this Doug. and I and I hope your listeners will enjoy this three-part series, and I know I'm going to learn a lot, and I hope they enjoy it as well.
0: Yes, and I will have Anita at the very end. We'll do a short wrap-up about what you heard, so no further delay. All right, here are our experts in flooding. Hey, Adapters. I am talking with Steve Stockton, recently retired from 41 years with the Army Corps of Engineers, where he was the Director of Civil Works. This is the highest ranking civil work civilian position within the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Welcome to the podcast, Steve.
2: Hey, thanks, Doug. Good to talk to you today.
0: You know, I got your bio, and it's a very long bio, and it really is quite amazing, and I would have liked to have shared more, and I'll actually share that in my show notes. But I just want people to know that I'm talking to an expert on flood management. And so I I think hopefully I'll have a good sense of that. Thanks. So let's just dive into this. I, I have some questions for you and you shared some materials with me and I went through most of them and it's just, there's a lot of content there. And what I really want to do is give my listeners a sense of a bit about flood history. And I know we, we talked maybe doing a little bit of uh, work on international content, but mainly about the, the the U.S. situation. And so I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of jump into this. And I'm looking at some of the materials in the last 50 years. Could you talk about some of the positive and negative policy developments that occurred in flood management?
2: Let me start by saying, Doug, that people and water are kind of inextricably linked. You, you, you need water to live you need it for transportation, you need it for irrigation. And so the fact that people live next to water is is not a coincidence. And so it has evolved over time how people think about their relationship with water. Used to be you just accepted it and flooding occurred and you got out of the way and you accepted whatever damages you wanted. But then uh, people, and as engineering prowess grew, uh, they started to build structural features like levees and dams to reduce the flood risk. But at some point, Mother Nature always has a larger storm, and you need to adopt a more a robust portfolio of measures. You can't just rely upon structural measures. It, it's kind of evolved in this concept of how, how do you manage your risk? Because if you have to live near water, such as the case you know, in New Orleans, I think. It's a gateway for commerce, basically connects 30-plus states in the central U.S. for agricultural commodities. I mean, people have to live there, and it evolved that way because it's kind of the gateway to the rest of the world. Same with Houston. Houston uh, is kind of the center of the oil and gas industry in the United States, and they have to live close to where they work. And it's a difficult situation because it's it's very flat. So when you get many feet of rain in a short period of time, it basically has nowhere to go. If you look back over the last 50 years and kind of some of the major disasters, flood-related disasters, the ones I'm most familiar with are the 1993 floods on the Mississippi. And if you go back further than that, really the, the start of Mississippi River and Tributaries Project, which is comprised of uh, levees and bypasses and and channels, really started after the 1927 floods because it had had a huge impact on American society, caused mass migration, and really disrupted a lot of communities uh, for many months. After that, though, you get the the 93 floods on the Mississippi. There was a huge uh, task force put together headed by uh, retired General Jerry Galloway, that looked at, you know, what are the policies that the administration should undertake to really uh, better manage their flood risk? And one of the key, key findings from that was it's not just a federal government problem. It's not just a state problem, but, it, you know, it requires a village. State, federal, local, tribes, uh, businesses really all have to uh, figure out how they're going to better manage those flood risks so they're not as disruptive as they are.
0: Maybe you could help debunk or affirm sort of a reputation that we see these floods and you see people getting flooding. And I think the loss of life, even though any loss of life is tragic, that the the Army Corps has probably done an amazing job over the last hundred years. If you look at the events of loss of life, I mean, I think back in the turn of the century, you have events where 5,000 people would die, and, and we don't really see that unless it's something like a hurricane. This notion of rebuilding in the floodplain, it's always discouraged, and yet it seems to keep happening. And then, you know, there's a series of recommendations not to do it. Why is that something we can't solve?
2: The primary reason is land use decisions are not the purview of the federal government. Those are really state, local decisions where they decide what can be built, where, uh, what the building standards are, and zoning issues. And kind of the tragedy in my mind is that there's a lot of pressure by developers to develop in the floodplain. And what they do is they'll develop housing developments or industry. Then they will sell that to the owners of homes. And then the developer is gone. And the people that are left with the residual risk of living in the floodplain are are the homeowners. And they may or may not understand exactly the level of risk that they're exposed to.
0: Hmm. Well, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit and and get your sort of uh, opinion. Using natural systems to help mitigate against flood damage. And I mean, I know FEMA and U.S. Army Corps. uh, Well, you're no longer there. (laughs) I'm sure you feel very close to it. But uh, it's promoted when you have your toolkits it's something that you talk about but when it comes to actual dollars spent it just seems like a win-win situation when you're using natural systems to help mitigate flooding events and yet you don't necessarily see the dollars really going toward purchase of more of these lands and I guess that has to be combined with sort of reform of where people actually can build but you know what do you see are the opportunities uh, more so with natural systems to help mitigate against flood damage
2: well I think they're an important component of the whole portfolio of measures that you can take to reduce your flood risk down to acceptable levels. In most cases, though, if you're looking at barrier islands or natural reefs, those measures in in and of themselves are not enough to reduce your flood risk to acceptable levels. I think you need to look at a combination of structural measures, whether those are levees, uh, building codes where you're elevating first floor elevations above the base flood level. You're looking at uh, zoning, which is a non federal responsibility. You're looking at a whole portfolio of measures, and all these natural and nature-based solutions should be, need to be part of that portfolio, but they can't do it all themselves.
0: You have some experience with some of the international work being done. Do you know of any examples, I don't know, Europe where they use nature-based approaches that have been relatively effective in, in- cost-effective?
2: Yeah, I think probably one of the leaders is in the Netherlands, and they've got this whole concept, uh, room for the river is what they call it. And they tout that, where they basically, but we, we think they actually stole it from the United States. But, <laughs> uh, but it's it's part of their marketing campaign is where they use, again, this whole portfolio of the measures. Uh, they don't just rely upon levies. They rely upon having resilient, communities, again, looking at that whole portfolio of measures that you can have within the floodplain so that when a flood does occur, you can recover quickly. And so in a lot of that, you know, they're looking at floating homes or they're looking at building up structures on, on berms and allowing pasture land uh, to flood. And, and it's all common sense kind of stuff. But the, the Dutch have probably done the best job uh, developing the concept and marketing the concept internationally and, and again it's it's about living with water as opposed to i say, 1960s way of thinking where man can control mother nature i think people have come to the conclusion that mother nature always bats last there's always going to be a bigger flood and we need to focus more on risk management and how to become more resilient rather than thinking we can have a, a levee system or a dam large enough to stop all the water
0: that's potentially going to uh, come at you. You know, it's funny, my next interview tomorrow is with a researcher from the Netherlands. So (laughs) uh, I'll be able to ask some of these questions. And one of the things I want to ask them, too, is that, again, they're using more nature-based approaches. But when I think of the Netherlands, the idea of a truly natural, intact system, they've obviously don't have those as much as we have in the U.S. You know, we still, even though we've we've dammed a lot of our rivers, that the idea of what really is a natural system in, in some of those European countries, it's, it's not quite the same.
2: No, they're, uh, you know, two-thirds of the country is below sea level. They have their whole delta works. They, they claim to have a 10,000-year level of protection against uh, storm surges in the North Sea. And they have a, a good, consistent funding stream where they're constantly making improvements to that system. But there, there's there's not much natural left in the Netherlands. It's all been developed over many hundreds of years, and there's not a lot of uh, natural features left.
0: Well, I have to be careful how I ask that. Um, <laughs> all right. I want to pivot again, then. I want to get your feedback. I mean, you, you have such a, a long career with the U.S. Army Corps. It, I think it, it's just very interesting for folks that have been getting in, involved in the climate change realm. And and one of the things that you shared to me is this Blueprint for Change sharing the challenge, which came out in 1994, I think, in response to the 93 floods. And I was going through it, and there was one mention of climate change, and it's in a small box sort of in the middle. And I I thought that was interesting. And it talked about, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty to this issue, but it's just saying, you know, we should really be proactive uh, uh, about it. And that's all it pretty much said. And I'm just curious, maybe some of your thoughts of how you see that issue of climate change evolves especially within the the Army Corps
2: uh, well that that gets into this political controversy we're in under the last administration when when I was there a lot of emphasis was put on adaptation to climate change uh, the Corps of Engineers tried to focus on basically saying it's happening it's going to happen and so we need to focus on adaptation we didn't we tried to stay away from the whole mitigation aspects of carbon taxes and 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 that part of it, because that was such a lightning rod. But we work closely with uh, USGS, uh, Bureau of Reclamation, uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and I think we really developed some uh, robust guides, if you will, how to implement these adaptation strategies into federal policymaking.
0: In one of the presentations you shared with me, you have a definition for resilience, and I want to read it really quickly. And there's two that are very similar to each other. And I, I don't know if there's like an official definition within the Army Corps, but the ability of a system to prepare for, resist, recover, and adapt to achieve functional performance under the stress of disturbances through time. And so my take on that definition, and I've talked about the definition of resilience on this podcast many times, is that I think Army Corps, it's probably, it's your core business is building resilient communities. And with adaptation, sometimes you have to kind of throw in the towel. And with that definition, it it almost seems you're kind of taking adaptation and, and putting resilience on top of it that maybe, you know, you think of some coastal areas that have significant sea level rise that you aren't going to be able to resist and recover. And yet you you see where I'm getting at? It's just like, that's not really adapting. Adapting kind of lends itself to saying, well, maybe we don't resist and recover, but we let things go. And is the Army Corps ever in a position to take that attitude?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that also is very politically charged. But, I,
0: but you're retired, I, so you've got total freedom now, right?
2: <laughs> of course. right. But I think there are instances, like after Superstorm Sandy in 2012, where you withstand, you resist, but when you recover, you can build back smarter. For instance, one of the challenges that we ran into was a lot of the building complexes, apartments, housing. They had all their... Generators and switch gear in the basement, which is if you're looking at flooding, uh, it's the worst place you can possibly have it. So, and there are a lot of examples out. So when you rebuild, you know, start thinking about putting your emergency generators, electrical equipment on, you know, above the base flood elevation. So you can, I think, adapt over time as you suffer losses, but build back smarter
0: over time. I want to ask you one more question and if you had a few, especially, and I, I know it. Sometimes it takes a few years to, to just kind of take off. That I, I was working for the federal. I worked for the federal government, and they, <laughs> you got to be careful what you say. But if you had, a, a, two to three recommendations on how to kind of proceed on the is, these broader issues of flood management, uh, yeah, if you could share those now, just that would be great.
2: I, I think I'd I'd like to see more of a federal role, working with the states in developing. Uh, policies that reduce risk and kind of share the burden at, at all levels of, of government. I mean, some states, candidly, like California, I think, are out in front of the federal government in terms of adapting uh, and putting policies in place. There's other states, though, that they see that as a regulatory burden and going to cause them more expense, and they want to take those risks. And that's where why it's difficult for the federal government to direct, but I think I think the federal government needs to play more of a leadership role in, in studying, setting the standards and putting incentives in place for people to comply with those standards or become more disaster resilient.
0: Okay. I agree completely. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate your input to this episode, and thank you again.
2: It's been a pleasure, Doug. Thanks.
0: Hey adapters, I'm talking with Dr. Brehi van Wessenbeek, an expert on ecosystem assessment and ecological data analysis with a focus on coastal and wetland ecosystems. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you.
3: Glad to be there.
0: <laughs> Was I even close with the name?
3: Yeah, you are do- you were doing really well.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So what organization are you working with? Uh,
3: I work for Deltares, which is an uh, applied research institute on water and soil, soil management in Delta areas.
0: And so I, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but you are in the, uh, the Netherlands. What part of the Netherlands?
3: We are situated in Delft in the west of the Netherlands.
0: Okay, I want to jump in a bit about the work that you're doing, but first off, I just think for my listeners, can you give a little background about the Netherlands and issues of flooding and and why you kind of do the work that you're doing?
1: Yeah,
3: yeah, we could. Well, where we are situated, for example, that's below sea level, that already tells uh, a little bit why the Dutch are um, always working uh, with water and always busy with water management because a large Part of the country is below sea level. So we have to uh, maintain several kinds of defenses to keep the water out and pumping systems.
0: Is it basically just keeping out it's the, the oceans, but are there specific storm systems that really make it even more difficult? Or is it just basic keep the oceans out because of sea level rise?
3: Yeah, it's not only the oceans, of course, because the Netherlands also is a, a delta area. So it's also the rivers. So we have, we're in Rhine Meuse Delta. So we get all the water actually that comes from those rivers, and they uh, they discharge in the North Sea. So it's about keeping the um, surges from the coast, but also to uh, keep the rivers, the the high, especially during the high discharge period, keep the rivers to be able to flow out and discharge
0: freely into the sea. Basically, you're dealing with things from both directions. That uh, that must make things extra difficult.
3: Yeah, that's typical in Delta areas and and what we deal with because we're below sea level is also groundwater. So if you have a polder system like we have, which is below uh, sea level, if, if we wouldn't have a pumping system to drain it, we would flood by groundwater.
0: So I had a conversation recently with someone from the Army Corps of Engineers that it's going to be part of this episode, Steve Stockton, and I asked about some international examples of people doing some good flood control work. And of course, he immediately went to the Netherlands and he had said that you guys planned for and i had never heard of this time frame before one in a 10,000 year flood event. Was that accurate? Is that how you sort of do things there?
3: It's a way of uh, uh, dealing with the safety levels, right? So what we we try to plan ahead into periods of larger extent. But in general, like if we do levees or uh, storm surge barriers, for example, they have a certain lifetime, which is not that long, of course. So uh, their lifetime is usually about like we plan them for about 50 years. And the one in 10,000 is like a safety level. So we used to have this kind of measure to have the, Levees and and, uh, in certain parts of the Netherlands. And it's actually, they have to be able to withstand a storm and the forces that come with it that could occur one in 10,000 years. So it's a probabilistic kind of measure.
0: Right. Well, that's still a pretty big number to be working with. (laughs) Yeah. You shared a resource with me, Woods versus Waves, and if could you give a little bit of background on that?
3: So what happened in the Netherlands? Also, we have we have a big system of levees and uh, storm surge barriers, but also like on the west of the Netherlands, for example, we uh, actually manage uh, by through uh, sand nourishment our natural beach and dune system. In that part, for example, the one in ten thousand is achieved by the dunes, and in some areas they extend over a kilometers width. Uh, And they form our main flood protection buffer against the flooding from the sea. So we have a big sort of uh, line of work that's developing in the Netherlands, which is called, I don't know, Building with Nature or Green Infrastructure or Nature-Based Solutions where we try to combine uh, natural functions with uh, flood risk reduction. Uh, and one of these is, of course, the beach and dunes, but other ones are, for example, where you could use a uh, riverine or fluvial floodplain forests to reduce uh, wave impacts or to reduce current velocities in more sheltered uh, estuarine zones and, and bays, You have uh, marshes, of course, like you have in the US too. And those marsh systems, they can reduce a surge. They can reduce the waves or attenuate waves. And we try to, uh, make combined defenses of, for example, if we better calculate with the marsh that is in front of a levee, we can have a levee that is uh, more has a more gradual slope that doesn't have a stone slope but a grass layer maybe on it and that is lower in crest height. Yeah. So what we want to do basically is uh, well across the world there are claims about what nature-based solutions can do and what they can uh, do in reducing the uh, the strength and the power of storms and of waves and of surges of typhoons tsunamis. You hear all kind of wild stories. But little of these natural systems have been tested under those extreme conditions. So you can imagine that uh, with a mangrove forest and a typhoon, there's never been a researcher really out there measuring what happens then. So does that forest attenuate those waves under a typhoon? Do the trees break or not? Because we have this large safety for our flood risk reduction structures, we want to be able to test and quantify what these systems do under more extreme conditions. So right now we're building a forest actually and we have a big uh, wave basin. It can make the largest artificial waves in the world. And we build a forest in that wave basin to test if trees hold under bigger wave impacts with higher water levels and how efficient they are under those forces in uh, attenuating waves.
0: So, yeah, that was my next question. I, I looked at this YouTube video that you got, and I think it's related to all this research, nature-based flood defenses, illusion or solution. And I'm just curious. It, I think a lot of people look to the Dutch when it comes to flooding issues. And I and I think of developing countries that let's say that the research that you're doing, do these nature-based ways of dealing with floods. Let's say your research says, well, it's not as effective as, as we think it is. And I mean, you, you could go that direction, you know, that you never know where the science is going to take you. And if you look at developing countries, that a lot of the sort of solutions offered to those countries are like, okay, you should use more of your natural systems, because they'll never have the financial resources to kind of harden their coastline in ways that developed countries can. So what if your research leads to a situation where it really undercuts the, the natural solution approach? You, I mean, do you have those concerns how others will interpret your research?
3: Well, I think it's it's not about uh, undercutting a certain approach. I think it's about not giving people a false sense of security, right? So you want to keep people safe. And if it turns out they're not safe with a certain type of typhoon behind the mangrove forest, there, there should be an early warning system in place. So it's not always about hard or soft defenses. It's about also these non-structural measures that you take against uh, hazards, right? So And you don't want people not to respond to the early warning system thinking, that they are safe behind a mangrove while they are not. So, I think it's about giving people the right information that is uh, for them, or well, that guarantees as far as you can guarantee that their safety, or at least gives them the right information to make the good choices. Should you evacuate or not? Should you focus on an early warning system? And in what we say in flood risk management, it's always about combining solutions, it's never a single one. So, I think. It won't undercut anything. It will just quantify what those natural solutions have to offer and for what part of your flood risk reduction you can rely on a natural solution and for what part you shouldn't.
0: Okay. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> so the work that you're doing obviously is very important. What are some of the ways that your organization, I guess you individually, how, how do you communicate this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming you go to conferences and such, but there are groups out there that, that aren't able to do the kind of work that you're doing, what, what are some of the most effective ways to communicate it? Huh.
3: Yeah, very different question, but a, but a good one. So for me, what, what I typically like about the work I do is I do research, but I also work on implementation. So I'm actually out in the field a lot, just talking to people that live close to coast or, uh, and actually thinking with them What are preferred solutions for their situation, right? And that is also how they get access to knowledge. So, for example, I do a project in Indonesia and there we provide a lot of training and, and I actually, I do train like the national government, but I also train like local aquaculture farmers uh, that are in the field on coastal management, on how their system works, on and on what happens on larger scales, because they of course are experts of the system on the small time scale, but on the larger spatial and time scales there's information that they don't have access to and they mostly they find it very interesting if you tell them that what happens upstream in the river probably influences what happens in their coastal stretch, right?
0: And I'm thinking of Netherlands in regards to sort of the natural systems there, it you probably don't have and please correct me if I'm wrong, and since people have been living there so long, intact wetland systems and natural systems. And so the fact that you're approaching it with like a look, look at trees and very specific single items. And And I know it's not just trees, but I look at maybe the United States and where we do have, I think, probably more intact, ecologically intact river systems than you have in the Netherlands. Is there any difference in sort of the outcomes associated with flood control with the work that you're doing in the Netherlands and and your own exposure to maybe some of the river systems, you know, in the developing world or like the United States?
3: Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's very different. You're kind of right that we are – what we do sometimes, especially for the nature-based, has a bit of a smaller scale maybe. And so we have actually encroached on a lot of the wetlands. So we have – especially our salt marshes, they are more like fringing marshes in front of levees, right? So we have the marsh-levee combination. I actually, (laughs) I always enjoy working together with people from the U.S. For example, I've been working for long now already in the Mississippi Delta because there you guys have like a full wetland system, right? Going from the freshwater to the brackish to the salt wetlands. And what's actually very interesting about it is that if you, so the management, if you think about managing deltas on larger scales and how you could manage deltas in a way and working with nature that's a very different uh, angle than in the Netherlands and and to me that is the most promising and angle in the future so looking at uh, Mississippi Delta for example what's happening right there right now bringing the river the Mississippi back into the wetland system right by these massive diversions yeah, that's extremely interesting, and I'm I'm uh, also really interested to see how that will work, right?
0: Again, it sounds like you guys are climate-proofing the Netherlands quite well. I, I don't know how much you follow Miami. The, to us, if you're looking at a meter even two meters of sea level rise, there's not much Miami can do just based on the geology and how flat it is there. It, no. uh, there's... I'm assuming there's not that sort of fatalism in in the Netherlands that the the flood controls that you're working on, that you are factoring in that one meter, two meter sea level rise and you're quite confident you'll still be here. Because in Miami, quite frankly, it's just a sort of denial of what's really coming.
3: Yeah, it it depends on the level of sea level rise you're talking about, right? I mean, one meter or two meter for us will be okay. We're able to cope with it. But we are now uh, actually... As an sort of how do you say as an exercise looking into what would happen with like 20 meter sea level rise or <laughs> yeah it can be a lot more right there are some recent publications uh, are pointing at uh, actually sea level rise that may be a lot higher and that that we cannot foresee so it seems they're more like unprecedented effects that we are not foreseeing right now and I think to me the key in there is like if there's so so much uncertainty about what will happen in the future you you need to be you need to consider that carefully in your planning because otherwise you may start actions right now that move move you into some kind of locked in situation in the future and if you consider extreme sea level rise in the future, for example, or at least the uncertainty that comes with it, you may make very different decisions right now what you do.
0: So thank you so much. And uh, I think for my listeners, there's a lot more to learn. I, th- I think this could be a much longer conversation, but I appreciate your time.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: Hey, Adapters, I'm talking with Dr. Jeff Opperman, Global Lead Scientist for Freshwater with World Wildlife Fund. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Great, thanks. Great to be here. We're going to dig into the, this issue of flooding. That's but I'm just curious more. This title you have, global lead scientist for fresh water. W- what do you do at the World Wildlife Fund in regards to that?
4: It's a position that is focused on um, our freshwater work all around the world. And so, World Wildlife Fund and is part of the WWF network that's active in about 100 countries. And so, we have freshwater staff. Freshwater scientists, freshwater programs all over the world. And, you know, these programs are guided by science. We develop and refine our strategies based on the best available science. And so my job is to work with those teams in, in different rivers around the world from the Amazon to the Mekong and to help improve their strategies for conserving rivers and other, other freshwater ecosystems and, and all the values they provide to people.
0: Is flooding a big part of what you do? I mean, we have you on. We're going to talk a bit about that. But how much has that become part of your,
4: your day job when it comes to just fresh water? Well, f- flooding is an interesting concept because to to most people, the word flooding only has negative connotations. It's only thought of as as a natural disaster, or, or some uh, form of threat or problem for people and certainly large floods uh, when they affect people you know that is truly a problem and you know it's clear that it's something that governments need to improve how they protect people from floods But as a freshwater scientist, I also think about other uh, connotations and other meanings for flooding and in fact flooding is is a very natural, process for rivers. And decades of research now have shown that, in fact, floods are critical to the to the productivity and diversity of river systems. So it's often the floodplains, so the floodplains are the areas that are periodically inundated by river floods, that it's the floodplains that really drive a lot of the productivity of river systems. For example, a, a, a river like the Mekong in Southeast Asia, it, it has the biggest harvest of freshwater fish of any freshwater system in the world. Almost 20% of all freshwater harvest is coming from that one river system. Wow. And the reason it's so phenomenally productive is there's this annual flood pulse where the river swells, expands, and and all that river water moves out into these vast flat floodplains where the water can slow down. It can create complex habitat with vegetation. Um, as it slows down, the sediment drops out, the sunlight filters through, boosts the productivity, and that's where all these, this great productivity of fish is actually coming from, as fish spawn on the floodplain, as they grow fat on the floodplain. Uh, and so that's – as a scientist, we really think about how flooding as a natural process is essential – to how rivers function and how indeed how they provide benefits to people. So it's really in that in that mix. So natural flooding that people are adapted to and societies are adapted to, that's great, that's productive, that's important and valuable. Flooding when land use and cities and agriculture are not compatible with flooding, that becomes something that we have to try to solve. So those so I look at flooding in both ways and, and really what I find so interesting is the intersection of those. So how can we do strategies that reduce risk for people and reduce risk for property while accentuating and, and taking advantage of the benefits of, of floods and floodplains as a natural phenomenon.
0: You recently published a book, well, you published it, but the, the book Floodplains that you co-wrote with several other authors, and it came out in 2017. What inspired you to write this book? And I'm, I'm guessing
4: it's a, some of it is just you explained. Right. Well, what inspired us to write this book is all of the co-authors are associated in some way with University of California, Davis, and so I was doing a postdoc at Davis and working with a professor named Peter Moyle, and he's a prominent fish ecologist in the western United States. And some of his students had been studying the floodplains of the Central Valley. And, and they previously had not really been studied in terms of their value to fish, in part because most of the rivers in California had been confined by levees and controlled by dams. And there, there was this one area, and in fact, it has a very non-natural sounding name. It's called the Yolo Bypass. And it's a bypass for floods. So floods move into the bypass and it essentially was developed by engineers and, and flood management managers as a solution to keep uh, the city of Sacramento safe. And decades later, fish biologists began to look what was happening beneath the water. And what they found was that even though this was set up as, as a, a solution for flood uh, reducing flood risk for the city of Sacramento, that in fact, it was the best remaining floodplain habitat in that part of California, and native fish were using it. And it began to give this insight to, well, what, what was this like when the entire valley had these vast floodplains, and what would that have meant for the fish? And so they were finding that juvenile salmon— so, you know, the young salmon they spawn up in the in the foothills, well, the adults spawn up in the foothills, and then the juveniles begin to move back down towards the ocean. And they would move out onto the floodplains when they were flooded. And as I said at the beginning, these are these big, shallow areas, slow-moving water, very productive, perfect for young fish who are trying to fatten up on their way out to the ocean. And the the young salmon had dramatically faster growth rates and achieved larger sizes when they were out on the floodplains compared to the salmon that were just in the rivers. And they, they did this through, um, you know, experiments and through observation of nature and came to that conclusion that these floodplains were really important for native fish and that the best remaining floodplain was this managed feature of the landscape called the YOLO bypass. So that is what really inspired us, that there was this way to do flood risk management that could be compatible with benefiting ecosystems and and particularly in the temperate world where so many of the rivers have been affected so dramatically and they've been disconnected from their floodplains that we wrote this book to try to point that out that there was a, a way to manage rivers and to manage floodplains and to and to manage flood risk that really accentuated all these positive ecological processes such as productivity for fish, and to do that in a way that was reducing risk for people. So this YOLO bypass became sort of a a model for us of of what we were wanting to talk about, about this idea that you could reconcile productive floodplains with safe communities.
0: Okay, so in, in the book, you use a lot of case studies from the U.S., Europe, in australia but let's take the example of the mekong uh, river system is there's things going on there the sort of management that you see in the book or are there opportunities in mekong and i mean it, it, and I, I guess what i'm getting at here is like you have a developed country versus a developing country and so does do the lessons from the book would they apply well to a, a situation like the mekong
4: that's uh In These countries tend to have lower flood damages overall, even though they have not invested in flood management infrastructure yet, and so the reason they have lower flood damages overall is that their development patterns are reflecting flood patterns, and so they tend to have – They tend not to have much development in places that will be at risk of flooding. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to this. I mean, there are floods and there are damages, and I don't want to minimize the fact that there are challenges with flooding in many places. But the big picture is a lot of these river systems that have not yet had infrastructure developed to control floods, they actually have lower damages than places that have built up lots and lots of infrastructure, because then what happens when you build up lots of infrastructure like levees is the development greatly increases in the areas that are ostensibly protected by the levees. But in fact, I was listening to your podcast earlier and Jeff Mount has this famous uh, phrase that there's two kinds of levies in the world, those that have failed and those that will fail. And so that is the challenge that when there's a lot of development built in response to the security offered by levees, uh, very often those will fail at some point, and the damages will be will be tremendous. So the lesson would be that when development patterns are are made in a sensible way, reflecting natural flood patterns, that's a great way to keep flood damages down. Now, on the other on the other hand, there's a lot less high economic intense uses of floodplain land so that that is that is the trade-off so I don't I don't want to be poly, Pollyanna-ish about that so therefore I think that there is there's lessons to be learned from both there's the ensure that development is is compatible with flooding and is uh, emphasizing development in places that are at low risk of flooding those are lessons we can learn from these systems and then they these countries undoubtedly are going to be uh, pursuing more Security from flooding over time, um, as the as the value of urban infrastructure increases, as agricultural patterns change, we know that these countries are going to be following many of the development patterns of places like the United States, and so there will be investment in, in flood risk. So what would be what would be really what, what I would be hopeful to see is that there can be a much more let's say a hybrid approach of an integration of, of what we call green infrastructure, which is keeping floodplains open, allowing to help store and convey floodwaters. So green infrastructure along with a strategically designed and, and um, planned uh, gray infrastructure. You know, trying to find the best combination of those uh, of green and gray infrastructure.
0: Jeff, I want to talk a little bit about communicating and specifically green infrastructure. And when I read and when I hear about all the benefits of green infrastructure, of course, my initial thought is Hey, why don't we do this more often? It makes all the sense in the world to do it. And do you know of examples, I guess, and let's not use the Netherlands. I guess there's a highly engineered, but they use some green infrastructure of countries or maybe some geographic locations that have really used green infrastructure in a productive way and have been able to demonstrate that. And I guess what I'm getting at too is that when a, a local official or a state official has to make a decision about flooding that sort of their gut reaction is like, well, we just need to go make sure that we're doing it the safe way. Let's really engineer this. And sometimes green infrastructure is sort of undersold. Do you, are you familiar with countries that have really done a great job of communicating
4: that value? I'm not really familiar with the country that I would say as a country, you know, like you can you can point to an overall country. I mean, I know that that China has actually been focused on quantifying ecosystem services and trying to invest and make some decisions based on ecosystem services. And I think there's some good examples of of large scale reforestation that China has been doing. And that was Somewhat related to flooding and, and largely for erosion control up in the I think in the Yellow River the River Basin there was immense amounts of sedimentation from erosion and they did a fairly massive green infrastructure uh, restoration project um, one, probably by acreage probably one of the biggest restoration projects in the world but I would say most of these examples are fairly piecemeal and and you you are correct that I, th- there is a there's a bias towards engineered solutions because they do have, first of all, a much longer track record of, of being tested, of, of understanding cost and performance and, and, in a more precise way. And so one of, the, one of the research opportunities going forward is to do a lot more research on performance and cost of green infrastructure solutions. There, there's a lot of room for, for green infrastructure. And when I say green infrastructure, it's really hybrid. So like a levy setback, it's not – some people would say, well, is that really green infrastructure? Because there's still a levy. But you're, you're taking the levee and you're setting it back, and you're using the, the area in between the old levee and the new setback levee, that area is playing performing a function. It's spreading out. It's giving more room for the river. It's, uh, under some situations, allowing storage of water, slowing the velocity so the levees are exposed to lower-velocity water. So it is kind of a hybrid. But those kind of so levee alignments, where levees go and how much space the river has, that's just a straightforward engineering hydrological calculation. So I do think that there's a lot of room for that to be offered as a solution for people to uh, explore it. And I think what should be more, uh, you know, where the research is still needed is to understand the co-benefits of that, and also, uh, so the co-benefits meaning the ecosystem services, the recreation, um, the river health benefits of setting it back. So putting that into the cost benefit analysis alongside the engineering performance of giving the r- river more room and conveyance for floods. And then also thinking about the long term. We we have a real crisis of levee ma- uh, maintenance in the US. There's something like well you know the American Society of Civil Engineers every 2 years they give a grade to infrastructure and and they recently gave levees a D minus. Wow. And the esti- and they estimated that to get the levee system in the U.S. back in shape would require an investment of $50 billion over five years. And the, the money is not even there to, to sort of maintain them as they are, let alone to get to this backlog of really serious maintenance problems. So that's something that really should be factored in when people think about levy alignment. So if you set levees further back and give the river much more room – then the levees are being exposed to much lower velocity water, and there's all this vegetation in between that's you know breaking up the, uh, the the power of the of the river there, and so that should be factored in. So we often don't think about the fact that you you build a levee and 30 to 50 years later you might need to replace it or or dramatically repair it, and that needs to be factored into these costs. And the research could also go into to the extent that these setback levees, where the river has much more room, that those might have a, a much lower maintenance over time. And that that's an important thing to consider.
1: You spoke very eloquently about what gives you optimism for flood management into the future. I don't want to end on a negative note, but what worries you the most about the future of flood management?
4: Well, so a big worry is we can be very concerned about climate change, and we should be, but even bigger than climate change, the real The problem is that so much of the world is developing right now in areas that are already prone to flood risk. In fact, there was a study uh, in the past couple of years and and they're forecasting that nearly half of all urban development between today and 2030 will occur in these areas that already have high risk of flooding. So That's an additional 500,000 square kilometers of urban development. Uh, It's an area the size of Spain of new development. That's gonna be at risk of floods. And then climate change is layered on top of that. That is one reason for pessimism, is that it does seem that when it comes to urban development, we haven't really learned the lessons of the past. And so there's a lot of development going in places that are at risk of floods. You know, what it really points to is the need for what you would call a diversified portfolio approach to flood risk management. And that starts with non-structural approaches, which are zoning. You know, that's the most important one, really, zoning. (laughs) So where is development allowed to go and where doesn't it go? And if you can get that right, that's a big, that's a huge part of the battle is just to keep as much development out of flood risk areas as possible. And, you know, the other parts of the diversified portfolio are strategically designed uh, gray infrastructure. So levees or flood walls or flood reservoirs where you need them, and then green infrastructure integrated into an overall system for flood risk reduction. But if you can get all those things, the non-structural to really keep people out of harm's way, and then a strategic mix of, of gray and green infrastructure, that's how I think we can better manage these rising flood risks. But it would require us to do a, be a whole lot smarter about where all this urban development is going.
0: Excellent. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your perspectives on this.
4: Great. Thanks. It was really fun to be here and talk with you about this. That is a wrap, adapters. I wanted to
0: close out this episode by having Anita back on to get her insight on what we just heard from these three speakers. Hey, Anita. So what did you think?
1: I thought this was really fun and really interesting and it was fun doing it together with you. And I, and I think we learned a couple of key points or things that came up that are in the flood green guide and issues that we wrestled with when developing the flood green guide. You know, as Steve was discussing, there's a reason why we all live near water. That's a historical reality. It makes sense that we have to be creative and innovative to deal with floods as they are and where they are. And then as Jeff said, not all flooding is bad and it serves a very useful purpose. And so we can't get so focused on we need to stop all floods all the time. Of course, we have to keep people safe and we always want to reduce loss of life or eliminate it completely if possible. But the challenge is... How do we maximize the benefits and minimize and or eliminate the negative aspects of floods?
0: Well, what stood out for me, in case you were wondering, is (laughs) we keep repeating the same mistakes. And I think the speakers really, you know, they shared some stories and we think of all these flooding incidents that have happened over the years. And the Green Guide here is this sort of modern tool to to do some of this planning. And a lot of these things that we've known for a long time, and I think what came out of some of their examples is just politics or just sort of, you know, the inertia of where we live. You know, we, we keep hearing stories of people are still living in these flood zones. And you, know, you could have the best science in the world, but unless the policies are in place to have the populations align with those, it's very tricky. And that's what really stood out for me. And it's very frustrating because the, a lot of these tools and resources, we know that they're out there. And where I take a little bit of hope in all of it is that, not that I think there's a lot of hope in climate change, but this notion of adapting to climate change and revisiting these issues of flooding, revisiting what it means for one in a 500-year flood, one in a thousand, that it, it might be the catalyst for some true reform in flood management, both in the U.S. and internationally. And I don't know if I'm being naive, but I think there's a real opportunity there.
1: No, I think you're right. But I think the policies, the guidelines, the regulations are needed and necessary. And yes, it does need to be updated around the world, but they're only as good as, in my view, the people behind them. Um, and if people don't want to face reality or or feel like they have no other choice or feel like it's not going to happen to me, they're very reluctant to change their behavior and to change their view of the world. It's a very emotional situation. And those of us who are not living in those areas and we see this, like you said, the same people, same communities just rebuilding time and time again. Why don't they just leave? why don't they go elsewhere? That's a very complicated and challenging issues. But I think that as people get more engaged and more organized, they can make more informed decisions. And so a fair amount of what we're trying to do, for example, with the the Flood Green Guide training is help people, help trainers engage with communities and decision makers on how and why they make those kinds of Decisions because often, as some of the speakers alluded to, the challenge is not the technical ones, the engineering specs, so to speak, but how do we collectively as a society set priorities and make decisions? And that's really tough.
0: Yeah. I don't think enough of these guidebooks and technical books really think about the psychology of the, of what's happening for people on the ground. And you alluded to that. And, but, I am seeing more of that when it comes to climate change. The idea of retreating from an area, like when you're working with communities, you really have to take in the the psychology of those communities and have the necessary tools to to deal with those situations. Not just okay, we're we can build a levee, but how are you dealing with people? And I think that's underappreciated in, in a lot of these sciences.
1: No, you're right. I agree. And. You can imagine for someone like me who works on a climate change adaptation and resilience team, and then my niche is disasters, what comes across my desk on a daily basis is pretty hair-raising, to be honest. And some days I just want to go home and crawl under the bed. But what keeps me hopeful and optimistic are the young people I work with, the interns I work with, the students I work with, and seeing the next generation of practitioners who don't have to be set in their ways or don't have to have a narrow focus on one specialty, but can take that broad view and, and we're trying to help them take that broad view and see how all these things are connected. And we need to learn how to work together and understand each other and, and speak with each other.
0: Oh, and I can attest for Anita the emails that she gets because she sends those on to me and these depressing <laughs> disaster ones and just on occasion and I would Wish you'd send me a funny cat video or something, but
3: (laughs) that can be done. (laughs) I know what
0: you get. (laughs) I know what you get in your inbox, and some of it's depressing. Okay, on that note, you alluded to it at the beginning of this episode, but what can we expect in episode two and three of this flooding series?
1: So, in episode two and three, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of these creative issues. How do we creatively engage? How do we creatively inspire? Um, how do we train? And then what are people really experiencing out there, so to speak, on the ground and in the field? And we're fortunate within WWF and, and some of our partners. We're doing a partnership, for example, with the US Army Corps of Engineers. We work with several universities uh both in the US and around the world. And so WWF also has offices in almost every country. And so I'm really fortunate that I have such a wide global range of friends and colleagues and a network to call on um, to bring these stories to bear on this issue and share them with your listeners. And so I really look forward to episode two and three, and I hope your listeners will as well. Yes. It's been quite
0: a journey for me too. I've been able to talk with folks from around the world and I've learned a ton about flooding and climate change. And I I thought I knew a lot and I really knew nothing. And yeah, it's been an exciting journey. And I hope this three-part series becomes a, a real resource for a lot of folks out there. And on that note, in the show notes for this episode, as Anita mentioned, there'll be links to the, the green guide, but to all the speakers and some of their papers. And we'll just have a, a, a bunch of material in each of these show notes. But any final words, any, any send-off words to my listeners?
1: Well, I really appreciate you working with us on this, Doug. I think what you're doing is really important. It's a powerful resource. And we're learning a lot about podcasting and about communicating from you. So it's been a real pleasure and I look forward to the next few episodes.
0: Yes, and I I think it, I WWF's credit, they they see the value of podcasts. And I think all these tools out there, so you have a guide, if you have a report, but then how are you going to share that information? And here's my own sort of <laughs> using podcast to, to share that message, I I WWF is being innovative in that approach, so thank you. And on that note, until next time, Adapters, I will talk to you later. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Anita, Steve, Brehi, and Jeff for sharing their expertise on flood and flood management. And remember, this is the first part of a three-part series, check them all out. Stay tuned for those upcoming episodes. If you want more information on my guests, or the green guide that was mentioned many times, links are in my show notes. Some final housekeeping, don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Dapps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. I just had a new member from Chad join, and he shared some adaptation work that they're doing in Lake Chad. Okay, some shout outs. Thanks, Greg, for reaching out and telling me about all the amazing advocacy work that you're doing in Indiana. Thanks to Marissa and all your book suggestions. Thanks to Ben and the Freedom to Breathe team at Nexus. And also thanks to Kate Bishop-Williams and the ongoing work she's doing to make podcasts better resources in the classrooms. More on that soon. I know I'm missing folks, but thanks for everyone who contributes to what we're doing here. On that note, you've all said this. You hear me say this all the time. I love hearing from you, and I mean it. Just say hi, or if you have an idea for a guest, let me know. If there was an episode you want to talk about or complain about, please reach out. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things, and and I'm not exaggerating. It, it really does. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right, check out the website, americadaps.org. All this information is in the show notes. Just look down at your phone especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.